This is an echo from the past. From the past or from the past. Uh, I can never decide if I'm speaking or should speak some sort of American English or British. Some words sound better in British English than in American and vice versa. So uh, excuse me if I just jumble them together because that's just how I speak. So this is an echo from the past. A rerun, if you will. Uh, in this uh, way, uh, new listeners can catch up and old listeners can reminisce about the past. Everybody wins. This one was released on the 27th of September 2014 and uh, features a conversation I had with my good friend Andrew. We talk about alchemy, evolution, ayahuasca, spiritualism, shamanism and more. You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 8 of Natural Born Alchemist. And my name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode uh, we are going to do it a bit differently. Uh, I have my good friend Andrew here with me and he's going to interview me about my ayahuasca experiences. And after that uh, we are going to have a little chat about uh, psychedelics and alchemy. Uh, there will also be two uh, songs in this episode, both from an Argentinian uh, musician, fittingly called Alchemy. And the first one you'll hear is called Clockworks, and the second one is called Albedo, or uh, a part of it anyway. I don't play the whole one because it's quite long, but I, I'm going to play the best part of it. It's called Albedo. And if you want to check out this alchemy uh, guy or musician, uh, you just go to alchemusic.bandcamp.com or to soundcloud.com slash alchemy1. One as in the number, not the word. Anyway, um, Andrew, over to you. Here we go to everyone listening. Welcome to another original episode of uh, the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name today will be Andro, and I'm sitting here with Alex, a friend and a fellow Natural Born Alchemist. We've recently returned from a very interesting and intense alchemical congress in Amsterdam. We're still relaxing. Uh, we are now uh, north of Stockholm, surrounded by nature, forests and lakes. I couldn't have possibly asked for a better surrounding. And uh, when I came to this home, uh, Alex, I was surprised to find a very interesting hermetic library, but I couldn't see any flasks or alembics or retorts or ovens or anything even remotely related to what the layman would consider to be alchemicals. So what kind of alchemist are you? Well, uh, I consider myself more of an internal alchemist and uh, I like to use my body as the laboratory. And uh, some people use uh, flasks and uh, crucibles and, and pelicans, but uh, I rather use my uh, stomach, intestines and mind. 
And of those three main tools you've just described, your stomach, intestines, and mind, which one would you say is uh, the fire? Which one would you say is the vessel? Which one would you say is the matter? Um, uh, let me think. I would say that uh, the brain is the... The mind is the matter. The fire is the intestines. What, did, what was the third one? Stomach. Oh, yeah, no, about the vessel. Yeah. The matter, the vessel, and the fire. Yeah, the vessel is the stomach. All right, so the vessel is the stomach, mm. the intestines are the fire, and the matter is the mind or mm. the brain. Yeah. Well, that needs to be cooked. That needs to be cooked. <laughs> and is your brain cooking? Yes, it's cooking all the time. And... Uh, What would you say uh, your major alchemical initiation was? Uh, what brought you to alchemy? What made you realize you're actually an alchemist, even though you're not performing any traditional laboratory work? Uh, well, what brought me to alchemy was mainly when I was studying uh, alternative history. And I encountered alchemy doing this. And... Um, Um, it took a while before I realized that alchemy could be internal. At first I thought it was only lab work. But then I realized that uh, alchemy is about uh, transformation and change. And, um, and uh, when you apply it to this, then everything we do is alchemy in a way. Uh, most people do it unconsciously, but I'm trying to do it consciously. So basically what you're saying is that everyone is an unconscious alchemist and uh, some of us are just doing it consciously with a more focused intention. You could say that, but then there are also those people who are just zombies who don't do anything or don't want to change. So you have you have like three categories. <laughs> yeah. You have the zombies, yeah. you have the unconscious alchemists, and then you have the uh, conscious alchemists. Yes. Uh, within who there are also, of course, categories like the laboratory alchemists, the internal, the spiritual, the tantric, and uh, you are the kind of internal alchemists, alchemist, and you use like any other alchemist, you use certain tools hmm. for your task, and maybe this is a good time to uh, to reveal the name of this podcast episode, uh, which is a very special and original one. It is titled. Alchemy, an initiation through hallucination, which bring us, brings us actually to the main topic of our conversation today, uh, your tools for alchemy are of a very specific nature, and this is what I would really like to hear about from you today, your tools of alchemy and your teachers in alchemy which I understand uh, are of a very special and unconventional nature. Yes. So maybe you could expand on your initiations into alchemy and ab about your teachers. My teacher is uh, the plants and uh, specifically um, the ayahuasca vine. Um, I've also dabbled a bit with uh, magic truffles or magic mushrooms um, but any iboga. But really it's the ayahuasca that's my teacher. And ayahuasca is a psychedelic substance. Uh, and uh, you drink it 
and you have uh, some very strong effects after you drink it. Well, we're going to go into more details about those effects and uh, experiences a bit later. Uh, but how do you make the connection between psychedelic substances and hallucinogens like ayahuasca? And in what way are they your teacher? And what kind of initiations are they able to impart mm. to you? Okay. Um, well, when when you take ayahuasca, it um, does something very peculiar. It uh, it um, it destroys your ego, so you lose uh, you lose your ego, so you can look at yourself uh, from an unbiased perspective. Um, and when you look at yourself without uh, your ego intact, uh, you s you can easily see what needs to be improved, what things you've done that was not so good, and um, you can also see uh, uh, things like where you've been in the past, previous lives, or in the future. But mainly, it's uh, it's um, a uh, a state where you. Uh, detached from your physical self and from your ego yeah from my ego according to what you said before yeah. uh, this may be very hard to put into words but uh, I know I'm challenging you a bit right mm -hmm. now um, but how does it feel to look at oneself without the ego because the ego is something we have come to identify with so much uh, it has become an integral part of ourselves. We basically are our egos. We cannot know how to handle ourselves without our egos. It's basically who, what defined us, what defines us. So how would you put it into words? How does it feel to look at yourself without the ego? It feels uh, quite uh, horrendous. It's quite scary and it can be uh, very humbling also. So, um, uh, S some occasions you cry or weep or beg it to stop and uh, or you or you are just filled with uh, horror at what a horrible creature you're looking at and uh, this is why it's so ayahuasca is so effect uh, effect uh, effective when you uh, um, like if you have a addiction to something or if you extremely depressed or something like this uh, it it kind of takes this away uh, when you see how how uh, how bad the ego or the person you're looking at is i understand the experience but i'm still not fully sure how you describe the experience of looking or experiencing something without the ego being involved how does it feel i mean you said it's mm -hmm. scary i think it's I would say it's like a small word. I would maybe call it terrifying mm. to be without something that you have identified mm. with all your life. But how does it feel internally to be without ego? Do you lose it? I mean, let me just break it down into more specific questions. Do you feel any kind of loss of identity? Do you feel loss of attachment? Do you feel you're not part of this world anymore? Do you feel loss of personality? I'm just throwing options out there yeah. to try to understand it better. Uh, no, I, I never lose who I was uh, or who I am, but um, uh, you cannot become reconnected with your higher self. 
and um, the ego that we have is in this world this physical ego I have in this life uh, so my higher self it could also have an ego, um, I don't know, but it doesn't have the ego of this life. And uh, so it's terrifying, but it's also liberating. And um, of course, it depends on the person taking the ayahuasca. If you like to throw yourself into the abyss, uh, it can also be exciting uh, and uh, a very blissful thing. At the same time that it's terrifying. Um, but if you li you like stability and you don't like too much change, then it would be absolutely horrible to have this experience. It could be. Um, don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> I'm just trying to understand your experience from your perspective. Uh, so any answers will, will be good. It, uh, al it also shows you what you could be or... <laughs> what you could strive for uh, and it also shows you uh, the powers you have uh, that you might have not realized you had so uh, but it's a it's a very unbiased look at yourself you said before that you consider ayahuasca to be uh, your main teacher even your main alchemical teacher in and when i say alchemy i mean transformation or uh rather than transportation of metals, transportation of mentals. So uh, in what way would you describe the plant ayahuasca as a teacher? You mean how it teaches? Yes. Yeah. Are, well, is there a curriculum? Is there a method of teaching? Is there a method to the madness? Yeah, uh, it's, um, it's very difficult to explain, but it, it, there is a curriculum. Uh, uh, I felt I was given given a curriculum, and um, if I don't follow it, the next time I take ayahuasca, I'm gonna be very punished. Um, so um, yeah, it's it's very hard to describe, but it's like a, it's like a voice speaking to you, but not with words. Uh, it's it's a true telepathy. Um, you don't hear the voice you don't s not necessarily see the visions you just the meaning is implanted straight into your mind uh, whatever you need to be taught and um, also it can of, of course appear in in, in uh, as uh, different animals or or beings but uh, the true message is just tattooed onto your brain like an implant. Yeah. So basically, uh, what you're describing is sort of a reprogramming of the mind mm. to a better version, like an update or an upgrade. Yeah, yeah, it's it's for sure. It's, it's an upgrade. Yeah. Which I find myself, uh, I find it to be very alchemical, uh, upgrading the mind. So, from what I understand, there is a curriculum, there is a method, and ayahuasca actually acts like an actual teacher in the sense that uh, you get a lesson, or maybe we prefer to call it an initiation, that's also a lesson, and if you don't apply it in your life, the next time you go, you come to class, then you're getting sort of punished. Maybe it's not the best mm. word to use, but uh, mm. not to talking about classic English education here, mm. uh, it's still a, a hermetic initiation, but how would you describe the punishment? Could you maybe give an example of something you 
have been taught to do but have not applied and then you receive some form of feedback that was not so nice well the punishment is more like when because when you take ayahuasca you you lose the ego and you look at yourself so if you take ayahuasca you are they it teaches you some things you don't do what it teaches you next time you take the ayahuasca you can see it yourself uh, what a bad boy i've been yeah <laughs> so the punishment is actually coming from yourself the ayahuasca just shows you like look at yourself look you didn't do it what i said so uh, um so it's kind of like a self-punishment and um it can also be uh <coughs> Um, because it's so terrifying and strong you don't really want to upset it so um, uh, I try very hard not to <laughs> do the homework <laughs> um, um, yeah so uh, as a teacher what you're saying is it basically doesn't punish you but it allows yourself to punish yourself according to the responsibility you are taking over your own life so the more responsible you are basically you're going to punish yourself more if you didn't do your homework yeah and it's for me it's been like that of course it's all very individual but for me and also if you've done your homework and you really try to improve it uh, also rewards you and uh, that's even better <laughs> that, that sounds is definitely better <laughs> yeah. so could you maybe um I've heard that on one hand there are no bad trips. Uh it's even been said that uh the best trips are the bad trips, but uh from people who have been uh, going through such uh, initiations they always talk about extremes that uh unless you've had a really good trip and a really bad trip then you don't get the whole of the initiation thing. What would be your comment on that? No, I agree. Um I and I've had both, so um uh, uh, of course the good ones, the very best trips are uh, very easy to handle, but it's the bad ones that are extremely tough to go through. And uh like tough in the sense how you would feel if you saw your whole family and everybody you loved murdered before you, like this kind of heartbreak or real pain and sorrow uh, can be i mean a, a really bad trip can be really bad uh, but uh, the good thing when it's when it's over it, i was has a sense of always having a, a point to the story so you always realize something at the end and that makes you stronger and appreciate that you've had that experience and uh, for like my worst trip uh, was also uh, one where where i died which is very common in ayahuasca uh, that you have an experience where you die and that's also very healthy because then you realize that uh, death is is an illusion as well so uh, there's no need to fear death and if you don't fear death then life is much easier it's a very common alchemical theme and here i'm attempting to start to make the connections and connect the dots between the ayahuasca experience and uh, and what we consider to be alchemical 
there is much death in alchemy. There cannot be evolution without death. That cannot be uh, an upgrade, that cannot be a change or a transformation or a transmutation for that matter without death. So basically, whether we are traditional alchemists or, uh, or uh, of any other variety, there is a need to embrace death and make it our friend. Otherwise, what you and also myself are basically saying that there can be no change if we don't accept death as our friend and ally. Is that your opinion also? Yeah, I, I agree. You have to, it's the Phoenix legend, you know, you uh, out of the ashes, the Phoenix rise. So, uh, yeah, you can't. And also my favorite Gnostic uh, proverb is uh, if you, uh, um, if you don't, um, I mean, you need to die before you can resurrect. You can't, um, if you live this life and you you, you don't uh, rise in this life, then when you die, you don't, nothing happens. You just go back to the beginning. So I think it's good to, to have a le petit mort in this life. <laughs> it's good to die every once in a while. <laughs> Uh, technically, we sort of die every time we go to sleep. The, uh, the, the disadvantage is that usually we don't remember. And when we have this uh, alchemically induced death, then uh, we actually rem remember the initiation and we can actually learn the lesson and apply it. Uh, do you have to, do you, do you feel that someone needs to have a special calling or character to follow this path? Is it, a, is it something for everyone? Is it for certain people? Um, I th think it's best if it calls you, um, but I think everybody should, or, well, I think it could work for everybody, but if you're not prepared to change, then it can be very bad <laughs> if you do ayahuasca. Uh, you have to have some sort of wish to advance yourself. So, uh, what you're saying, it's not for everyone. No. It has to call you mm. on some level, because in alchemy they say that uh, many are called, but few answer the call, and even fewer make it through. So it's basically a selective process that some people may still show some interest, just shallow curiosity, and it's definitely not enough. And some people may follow the calling and realize it's not for them, and some people may embrace it as a path or as part of the, of a path through evolution. Yeah, in, in my fantasy, it would be nice if ev everybody in the world uh, had a real ayahuasca experience because I think it could improve the state of affairs. But in reality, it's uh, it's really only good for the people who, who it calls, who seeks it. So... Uh I think you're describing, describing a process from your initial fantasies, probably from the first experiences, that this is so great, I wish everyone could experience it, followed by the later realizations that maybe it's not for everyone and there is actually a price to pay and some preparedness to go through. Yeah, I, I always consider my life before ayahuasca and after ayahuasca. It's completely different the way I view life and uh, my future and everything. So, um, yeah, you, you you can't do it and not change, I don't think. And most people don't like change. 
Why do you think that is? Because it's ignorance is bliss. <laughs> ignorance is bliss. Yeah. And you don't agree with that? No, uh, uh, I don't think, no, I, I don't like that state of mind, but uh, I understand people who take that position. I under, It's quite comfortable, you know, just don't think about anything, don't think about who you are, don't think about what it, what is the universe, just watch TV, go to work, go to bed, you know. Uh, it, it, it is a bit easier to live life like that, but uh, for me it's a bit boring. If you take the, the saying about ignorance being bliss, I could quote different proverbs from other traditions saying that knowledge only brings pain. So how would you relate to that? Yeah, um, but the knowledge I've received from the ayahuasca is, uh, uh, is beyond pain. At initially it's painful, but uh, one thing I didn't say before is that uh, an ayahuasca experience, even though it's hard and terrifying, it is always uh, full of love. So there's so much love in uh, by these teachers, uh, un unconditional love. They don't. It's just love, and um, 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 this is an aspect that's it's very empowering. And this is why I would like to dwell a bit more on this aspect of love because love is a word that is so widely used. It has in my opinion at least, has lost almost any kind of meaning. It could be the new age kind of love, the tree-hugging kind of love, the the fake kind of unconditioned love. I mean, unconditioned until there's a condition. It can be motherly love, uh, which comes quite unconditionally, but with lots of attachments and demands and expectations. It could be uh, romantic love or just love between partners, friends. There are so many kinds of love, so many kinds of interactions. So how would you describe this brand or of love that ayahuasca taught you and uh, the follow-up question i guess would be isn't love too small a word to describe what you've experienced uh, yeah but that's the only word we have i can't think of another but uh, i would describe it as the way the sun loves the grass uh, this kind of love it's uh, if you uh, it's called anthropomorphize Anthropomorphize. Yeah, the sun and the grass. Or personify. Personify. Uh, you know, it's uh, it uh, has no uh, judgment. It doesn't judge you. It's just this is who you are. Uh, you want to do something about it? You can. But uh, we love you anyway. And if you fail this life, there's always another. Or And this is the infinity of existence of... Uh, this illusion and uh, and you're part of it and uh, yeah it's like it's not so specific as all those examples you mentioned of love it's it's, it's like a different type of love I guess you uh, named the sun as an example the sun as the sun loves the grass the sun can also uh, warm you and and heal you but it can also burn you and and kill you mm. is this what this love can do to you as well yeah, but it it still loves you, even when it kills you. So it it could be a tough love and yeah. yet love. Hmm. Because you can't die anyway, so 
it can't really kill you because uh, uh, from my from what I've learned is that uh, we are all immortal in a way even if our physical body dies yeah okay now is the part where I'm gonna play a bit of devil's advocate even though I can completely relate to everything you're saying uh, but what would you say to those people who just claim oh you're just a druggie it's just uh, you know you're just taking a psychotropic drug you get into this world of completely fake illusions it's all bullshit you're just making all this shit up and you're just a druggie like everyone else and you're just trying to rationalize and justify and call it with fancy names like alchemy and initiation but basically you're just a druggie and you're looking for a fix and a high and giving it all these fancy names so you don't belong to that lower category what would you answer to those people and there's two answers the, the first one is uh, when it comes to this recreational use it's it's ayahuasca is so far from a re- recreational drug is you know you you can't take it regularly or not if you, not in the way i do anyway because it would be impossible it uh, uh, it's like uh, um it's so hard work that you need after an ayahuasca ceremony you need i need anyway, at least a year a minimum before i can do it again and um this next time i'm going in a month uh, after that maybe it will take many many years before i will do it again so uh, it's definitely not recreational and then the other part uh, if it's just uh, Uh, you know it's just a drug it's just hallucinations uh, even if that's all true uh, it still works so it doesn't really matter it's like saying to a cancer patient that uh, oh here's here's a drug it's going to cure you the cancer patient is cured and then they tell the cancer patient that oh it was just wa- water it wasn't real or a sugar pill yeah but it's still still cured so it doesn't really matter Uh, which also brings me to my next point, uh, which is the alchemical connection, which we're going to discuss maybe uh, in the second part, is that uh, if the ayahuasca experience is a hallucination, well, isn't everything? Yes. Everything is... I mean, we're sitting here in this nice room, uh, everything is comfortable, we're having this nice friendly chat how do we know that this is not a hallucination how do we tell the difference i mean just because we've ingested some substance we takes which takes us to a different level how can we be sure that this current level which we have come to perceive as so-called real is not a similar kind of hallucination uh, i don't <clears throat> i think it is a similar hallucination so i'm pretty sure it's not real no more real than an ayahuasca experience it's just a different form of vibration or dimension or whatever you want. so it's basically uh taking an elevator between different levels of hallucination yeah which is a concept with which i completely agree but i also wanted to hear it from you because you've uh you're the ayahuasca uh student which I'm not, I have a different path, but... Uh, and that's where scientists often... I mean, science can be good for many things, but they often believe in this reality so much that 
their 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 reality is even more real than the one we perceive. They they can only look at hard facts, matter, and um, so they are they're taking the elevator to the basement in a way. <laughs> That's a very nice analogy. So basically, the science, the mainstream scientific community hasn't come out of the basement yet. No, they're still living on a on a, on a lowest floor. Yeah. So, uh, but, but they know they're extremely good at knowing everything about the the elevator. You know, they know the technicalities and they're, they're very good at that. But so, just in case there is some uh, lone scientist listening listening to this podcast. Uh, some scientist that is very strongly anchored in this physical reality, with a very definite perception of what is real and what isn't. What would be your message to this scientist, which by complete accident is listening to this podcast? What would you say to him directly? Uh, Let's so call him John. John. Well, uh, it's it can be valuable to find out everything about this illusion or hallucination hallucination that we're in now um, but it that doesn't mean you can exclude all the other realities so this is this is what they're doing like when they're investigating nature and finding out what plants which plants do what and how animals work it's just how it works in this reality but in the next it's different so uh, uh, knowledge is always good but uh, I don't think that, for me, scientific discoveries doesn't destroy the spiritual or illusionary reality that I believe in. You know, there's not a contradiction. I personally see no contradiction, but uh, most mainstream scientists or even uh, traditional alchemical practitioners uh, are very attached to the concept of proof in the material world. And this can be problematic, but also can contain its own solution. Uh, maybe the effects of uh, the initiation that you're talking about are not necessarily measurable in scientific terms. I mean, with uh, devices and thermometers and Geiger meters and counters or uh, whatever they name it. But the effects can be definitely measured. So to whoever says, what's your proof? I, s I would say that I am the proof. Mm. I mean, you cannot exclude the concept of proof. You just you can just say there's a different kind of proving it. Not yeah. maybe the, the empirical, scientific, academic way, but we cannot exclude proof from the ayahuasca or shamanic initiatory experience because there definitely is proof. Uh, even if it means that you you come you you go through this journey on this journey and you come back a different person, and people around you realize that you're a different person, so this should be proof enough, wouldn't you think? Yes, and also the good thing with ayahuasca is it's it's not uh, anybody can take it. So if a scientist just says it's hallucination, then they can just go down to the Amazon and drink it themselves, and then after. They've done that, they can see if they still have the same opinion. So it's very easy for them to investigate it. But most scientists who don't like ayahuasca or think it's hallucinations, they, they never tried it themselves. But there have been scientists uh, who changed their mind after they've had ayahuasca. Do you have some names? 
No, I don't have any names. I can't remember what names they were. But I, I read a book about, that was just about scientists going down, taking ayahuasca, and then d- describing their experiences. And uh, the, there were f- several cases of uh, non-believers turning into believers. <laughs> uh, you make it sound almost religious. Yeah, it is kind is of. Is it religious? No, I would say it's more a sacred uh, but yeah, because no, when you say religion, you always think of these organized religions, so that they ca- have a lot of baggage. But um, it's the first religion, I guess. I mean, it's an old practice that's been performed for probably tens of thousands of years. Uh, we don't know for sure, but definitely for thousands of years. So it's, a, it's if if it's a, uh, if it is a religion, it's a very old one. And also one more thing about the scientists, uh, uh, how they figure out something is truth. They just do a test. Uh, you know, if if there is an effect eight times out of ten, then that's the truth. Even though the eighth or ninth or tenth time something else happens, uh, it's the majority of of the same result that ultimate, ultimately becomes the truth. So uh, um, this this proof scientists always talk about is is relative uh, because on an infinite time span, the ninth or tenth time an experiment does something else over ten thousand years. If you kept doing the same experiment, that's a lot of times. So and also, as we all know, just like democracy and voting, statistics are also overrated. Yeah. Um, before we get to the end of this uh, first part of uh, this original podcast of Natural Born Alchemist uh, entitled "Hallucination Initiation Through Hallucination, uh, there are two more things I would like to ask you. The first one is, how do you feel this transf- transformation or transmutation through this plant teacher has actually changed your life in so-called real life uh, it has made me less worried uh, it has uh, taken away angst and depression it has lessened anger uh, it has uh, made me more loving and uh, more productive and uh, it has uh, opened up uh, opportun- opportunities also and uh, it has connected we connected me with people that uh, uh, yeah i made more friends and uh, yeah only benefits so there you couldn't name any any negative aftermath of this initiation no um not really, no. There's nothing negative. Okay, so before we continue to part two, which will deal with more with the uh, shamanic and uh, alchemical connection, uh, one last question, which can be a bit uh, challenging. What would be your uh, advice to someone who is interested in experiencing this path, who is interested in receiving those teachings? Where should they begin? Uh, what what should they follow? Uh, what is important? 
Um, I'll quote uh, Terence McKenna. He says, anytime you are going to try a psychedelic substance, your first stop should always be the library or nowadays it's Google, I guess. So I, I recommend people read as much as they can about ayahuasca. There are many trip reports and uh, reviews of different places you can go to. And uh, But ultimately the best thing to do is to go down to the Amazon and do it there and not in the West. Uh, and not by yourself. I strongly advise people not to do it on their own. And uh, even if they ha- their girlfriend is not taking it, sitting next to them, I don't advise that either. Uh, I think you need a trained shaman to uh, give you the ayahuasca and also guide you through it. Because if you do it alone, you can um, really mentally hurt yourself if, if you don't know what you're doing. Because it's so intense and powerful uh, that you need help when you do it. So what you're saying is for anyone interested is first to study it, to learn as much theoretically as possible about it. And then when you actually go ahead and do it, to do it with the so-called professionals, with the native shamans who have been doing it for years and have been initiated themselves by the plant. Yeah. And let me also add, there are bad shamans also that are there to steal your energy or steal your money and... uh, take advantage of you so it's also important when you find a shaman that you ask around or try to find somebody who's done it and had a good experience you get you get a good recommendation so you get a good shaman because there's it's always bad people so you think a good recommendation is enough to avoid the bad ones yeah is there any other way to tell or to feel if something is not going to be right for you um well uh, i have a pretty strong intuition i could But if you don't have that, uh, it's better to wait till you find somebody or hear about some shaman that is good. Uh, But usually if you ask around um, and, uh, you know, this is also the thing. If you're really uh, searching for ayahuasca and it calls you, you will find the right person. Uh, But if uh, so, yeah, I think that's how it works. That's where the religious bit comes in, the faith part, which I think is very important. Uh, and uh, one last question maybe is uh, how does a novice, someone who has not experienced this before, what would be your advice to handle the the preceding fears? Um, well, the way I handle it, because I after I had my very hard experience, I was very scared of drinking again. And uh, it was extremely difficult because I kept using my brain too much. And um, uh, in this higher dimension, our brain is a bit too small. Uh, So the best thing is to experience with your heart. Uh, This is how you should look at the experience, through your heart, uh, symbolically, not through your logical brain, uh, because that can drive you a bit insane. Would you say that there is an element of surrender? Yes, yeah. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, you have to surrender completely. Uh, there is no. You can't resist. Uh, that will only make it worse. Uh, so yeah, complete surrender. So one would need to prepare themselves to surrender to the plant if they want to 
if they don't want to experience unnecessary fears. Yeah, yeah, the, it's a one-way ticket. Yeah, I think it's the best way to say it. If you want to do ayahuasca, there's no going back. No. Yeah. I just uh, saw a quote on Facebook that says, uh, "Life is like drawing without an eraser." Mm. So uh, once you've been there, you can't not you cannot erase it. It's always going to be part of you. Yes. This teaching, this teacher, this energy, uh, this initiation. Uh, so you said you were going again in September. That's uh, one or two months from now. And you're going to Peru, right? Yes. And you're going with a group of people and you already have your uh, initiated shamans. Yeah. And uh, you said that probably, most likely, it will be after this next trip in September, it will be most likely be many years until you do the next uh, lessons, lesson or course. Yeah, if ever. If ever, because I don't know what's going to happen. But you don't know what's going to happen, but uh, still, what makes you say that that it's probably going to be many years? Because, uh, um, um, because it feels like the last year of high school or something. <laughs> it just feels like the, the, I just need a few more things, and then with that I can go forward. And if. Uh, Yeah, I think it's just it can't be described. It's just how I feel. Uh, I don't think I need any more uh, at this time in my life. Uh, so after this uh, trip now, uh, it will probably take a long time before I do it again. It's also because if you if you don't learn anything and don't advance, then what's the point? If you have to keep doing it, then it's pointless. Uh, so. Uh, I, if you need to do ayahuasca every year for your whole life, you know, you're a lost cause, in my opinion. <laughs> Unless you're a shaman, because they do it all the time. So, would you expand on that? Why is someone who's doing it every year or every few months, why why are they a lost cause? Um, because um, if you need to keep doing it constantly, you It's like you don't, didn't listen to the teachings. You know, how many times does the teacher have to say the same thing? You know, eventually you're gonna have to do what it says. Um, but you know, some people need, I guess, they maybe not lost cause, but um, it's all very individual. Maybe some people need more help than others. But for me, it's it would be uh, pointless to do it that often. Uh, the analogy that comes to my mind is like being addicted to school and wanting to stay in school one more year instead of facing the challenges of so-called real life. Yeah, that could be. I met a person once in the Amazon who didn't want to leave and kept doing it. And he had a child and he had two children and a wife in the US and he just didn't want to go back and face reality. So yeah, in, in his case, it, it can be used negatively. Uh, like any anything, you can use it as a sort of escapism, um, and um, uh, so yeah, it's not a hundred percent perfect in that way. If if the per if the patient is weak. Okay, so before uh, we conclude this first part and proceed to the next one, any final words, comments, 
uh, words of wisdom, words of advice that you want to conclude this uh, um, session with? All I would say is that um, for those who have not taken ayahuasca but want to uh, put magic back into their life, they should pursue it. And for those uh, who are scared of trying ayahuasca but are still interested, um, I would say that if you are serious and dedicated, uh, there is nothing to fear. Okay, uh, I couldn't have put it better myself. So uh, I'm sitting here with uh, Alex, uh, and you've been listening to an original recording, live recording of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. Uh, this one has been titled uh, Initiation Through Hallucination. And uh, part two will uh, most likely deal with the more uh, classical alchemy connection uh, to what we have been just talking about. So thank you for listening. Uh, I'm Andro and have been speaking with Alex. It's been a great pleasure and see you in part two.
Hello everyone and welcome to part 2 of Initiation through Hallucination. My name today will be Andro, just like last time, and I'm sitting here with my friend and fellow natural born alchemist, Mr. Alex. And uh, last time we were talking about hallucinogens and especially uh, ayahuasca as a valid path of doing personal internal alchemy. So we will be continuing from where we left off last time. And uh, yeah, and I have a question for you. And it's uh, the, the alchemical community um, doesn't see psychedelics as a uh, valid path for the most part. What do you have to say about this? I'm not sure about which alchemical community you're talking about. I assume you're referring to the traditional alchemists with the flasks and the retorts and the alembics, uh, exactly the ones that I didn't notice when I uh, first came to your place. And uh, in my personal subjective opinion, uh, traditional alchemy has become somewhat stuck in its traditional ways and uh, is failing to see the bigger picture of reality, its hermetic foundation and how in general the universe works and operates. Um, and I think that to better understand the concept of alchemy and uh, to which paths it can be applied, we would first need to understand what this universe actually is and what reality actually is. Have you ever asked yourself the question, Alex, what is real? Is anything real? Yeah, that's uh, how my quest started, was, uh, was this exact question. So uh, I think it's very healthy for everybody to ask that question at one point in their life. But it's very hard to find an answer also. Did you come up with an answer? Uh, yes, uh, everything is a hallucination, illusion. What a funny coincidence. <laughs> I have come up with the exact same answer. The thing is that to understand uh, the hermetic foundation of reality, uh, first and foremost, we need to understand that the entire universe, uh, at all its levels, all its dimensions, all its variations, is first and foremost a mental creation, a sort of virtual reality created within the universal mind, the unknowable point of origin, sometimes referred to as the all and sometimes referred to even as God. Uh, this point of origin, which we refer to as universal mind or the all as or uh, God, is completely absolute and uh, objective and completely unknowable to us from where we are right now. But this universal mind, to which we refer as God sometimes, is creating mental creations. And our universe is such a mental creation, which means it doesn't have any real, actual, objective existence, besides the fact that it exists in the mind of its originator, which is the universal mind. So in a sense, we are, we are a hallucination and God 
is a psychotropic substance, in a sense. So, uh, being hallucinations within a virtual reality space-time construct, we are simultaneously real because from our subjective point of view, perception is reality, and we are simultaneously completely unreal and non-existent because we are virtual creations and hallucination in the universal mind. So to the question, what is real? Or is any of this real? The answer is, none of it is real, and yet it is. And some people would call that a paradox. I think most people would call <laughs> that a paradox, but... Uh, How can you live with yourself? Can, we, can, you, can you live a paradox like that? Well, the greatest challenge of alchemy is to be able to maintain and contain and hold on to the paradox without going crazy, first, first of all, and then just unite those two extremes of reality and non-reality, of, of tangible matter and virtual creation hallucination, and realize that those two concepts can coexist at the same time. And uh, here I would like to introduce the concept of the continuum uh, and uh, especially the concept of the continuum of truth. Because many people adhere to the concept of some sort of absolute truth. There is one absolute truth and it's the only one that's valid. And uh, the other kind of people uh, on the opposite side of this uh, continuum they cling to the relative truth. They say that everything is relative, everything is compared to something, a uh, theory of relativity, etc., etc. And uh, we, in order to embrace this paradox of creation, of both existing and non-existing at the same time, we also need to embrace truth as a continuum between the absolute and the relative, between the subjective and the objective, between the, uh, the knowable and the unknowable because truth is also a continuum. It is not an absolute and it is not a relative. It is both. So once we are able to embrace this complete truth and not only a half-truth such as absolute only or relative only, then our lives can actually become much better because we start to realize that while we are a dream or a virtual reality or a hallucination in the mind of God, Nevertheless, here we are. However bizarre, yet here we are. Yeah, so um, in a sense we are both meaningless and very important. You, you agree with this? Uh, if you present a paradox to me, how could I possibly disagree? <laughs> Because everything is rooted in paradox. Without paradox, there is no creation, there is no continuum. So being able to embrace the paradox and to embrace its seeming, uh, seemingly opposite sides is uh, actually very close to the definition of wisdom, at least in my book. Mm. But this is hard to prove. If you're a scientist or a very logical person, how could you prove um, that this world or this reality is an illusion? How can I prove that it's an illusion? Yeah. How can you prove to me that you're alive? So it's more like seeing is believing. If you've experienced it or seen it, then it's easier to understand. But if you just 
trying to investigate the answer, it won't uh, find you. Well, at some point it will find you if you investigate it or not, if you want it or need it hard enough. Uh, but the the problem is with this uh, obsessive scientific need to uh, for for proof actually, because this uh, obsessive need for uh, for material proof can actually at some point uh, stand in the way of progress, in the way of evolution, because. And I'm gonna sound a bit religious here, at, at the at the risk of sounding a bit religious. Uh, I will say that sometimes it just takes a leap of faith to go beyond what is measurable, to go beyond what is credible, to go beyond what is acceptable, to go beyond what is normal, to go beyond what is uh, what confirms to common theories, uh, to go beyond uh, where no uh, person has gone before to quote Star Trek, and uh, and the burden of proof is within your own experience. And at some point you realize that when you do have the experience and you have integrated and it's yours, you no longer feel the need to prove it to anyone because you actually do not owe anyone an explanation for your experience. Do you feel like you owe anyone a, an explanation for what you've experienced? No. Do you feel that you need to prove to someone the validity of your experience with ayahuasca? No, no. I was just playing devil's advocate for a moment. <laughs> okay, you're getting back at me for uh, uh, from the previous episode. But uh, experience is the core and the root of initiation. Direct experience. And if somebody wants proof, they should go and experience it themselves because perception becomes reality when it is perceived and experienced. It doesn't have to be measurable by a device because a device is subject to relativity. A device can measure different things and uh, at different times and even in the most controlled environment, the observed matter will, beha will behave however it damn pleases. So, uh, as many uh, groundbreaking new discoveries in physics uh, reveal, uh, nothing is exactly as it seems, nothing is exactly measurable, so even proof has become somewhat uh, of a elusive concept. What is proof? How can you be sure that proof is proof? Maybe it's proof for certain conditions and not for something else. Maybe it's completely relative, maybe it's proven by a device that's not real. How can you be sure that the device that gave me the proof is even existing? How can you prove that you haven't imagined the device that has just proven to you that you haven't imagined it? If this makes any sense. Uh, somehow I believe it does. But in any case, uh, going back to the point that the universe is a mental creation and a sort of virtual reality, uh, brings us back to the foundation of everything being a sort of hallucination. So in that case, what is the difference between the hallucination that we call our so-called normal life and the hallucination induced by, let's say, a substance such as ayahuasca or magic truffles or uh, iboga or you name it? What is the difference between one hallucination and another? Well, uh, we've been talking about this for a few days now, so uh, uh, my answer is the, 
the the level of hallucination if it's a higher hallucination or a lower one well uh actually uh we once more agree which makes for a pretty bad <laughs> interview situation <laughs> because we pretty much agree on everything <laughs> but uh it's not really an interview we're just faking it it's just a friendly conversation uh but we just faking it for your hallucinatory pleasure uh in any case uh let's use a parallel to make it more easy to understand let's take homeopathy as an example many people still don't believe in homeopathy but uh the good part is that you don't have to believe in it for it to work basically homeopathy takes uh the symptoms of your disease or illness and uh basically takes the frequency of your disease and raises it up higher by many many degrees and just basically feeds it back to you so it takes your illness takes it to a much much higher level and feeds it back to you so somehow it affects a cure so it takes the lower hallucination of your illness cooks it to a much higher level feeds it back to you and then you achieve a cure and this is the same principle that operates with a uh, hallucinatory initiation and it's actually the same principle that operates in laboratory alchemy as well we take the lower vibration the lower hallucinus the lower the lower hallucinatory vibration and imbibe upon it the higher spirit or the higher hallucination which is exactly what happens in alchemy we we uh, imbibe the heavenly fire on the lowest earth most despised earth uh this is what happens in homeopathy we imbibe the higher frequency of the illness upon the lower frequency of the actual sickness that you have and it's the same in uh, hallucinogenic initiations you imbibe a much higher and uh better cooked hallucination upon your lower one and this is how people actually achieve amazing healings through hallucinogens uh because if your illness is a hallucination of a lower grade you just imbibe upon it a hallucination that is of a much higher frequency of a much higher grade much better cooked much more cooked much more subtle much more intense much more closer to the origin of the universal mind and a healing will inevitably result from imbibing the higher upon the lower and this is maybe the point uh, to uh, the time to remember the hermetic axiom of as above so below the above is just like the below above hallucination below hallucination however the above and the below while they are the same they differ by degree the below is below is cooked at a lower frequency and the above is just cooked as the, at a much higher frequency and by this imbibition of the above upon the below there is a sort of alchemical induction and we achieve a condition to which i refer as accelerated evolution which is actually also my definition of alchemy the best definition of alchemy that, that i could ca- ever come up with is accelerated evolution and if we can manage to take our lower hallucination because let's remember the universe is a mental creation or a hallucination in the mind of the all or in the mind of god then we take the higher more evolved more advanced hallucination we imbibe it on the lower and through this marriage of heaven and earth a healing will result
and uh, it takes, like you said uh, in the previous uh, episode, in part one of this uh, this uh, episode, you said that uh, there is an initiating taking place which requires a sort of surrender. So uh, in alchemy, as well as in homeopathy, as well as in uh, heterosynogenic initiations, uh, there is a requirement to surrender to the higher mind. The lowest must surrender to the highest. And this is maybe also at the root of most religions, like surrender to God, serve God, even though they are a bit uh, diluted and compromised and uh, contaminated by uh, superstitions and theology, still at the core of every religion, there are the hermetic foundation of the virtual reality universe, which is, like I said before, a mental creation. So uh, in this regard, I see no difference between laboratory alchemy, homeopathy, uh, hallucinogenic uh, initiation, because they all work according to the exact same principles, imbibing the above upon the below, requiring the below to surrender to the above. And if we imbibe a higher hallucination upon a lower one, then a healing will result. Accelerated evolution will be the result of this imbibition. What is the first matter of alchemy? It is twofold. It is the lowest earth, it's the Tartarus, it's the lowest uh, unspecified, undetermined, undifferentiated matter, completely unevolved. And the other aspect of the matter of the alchemists is the highest possible universal spirit, the most highly cooked, the most high. So the alchemical process starts with the, with the marriage, not of male or and female, not of uh, sulfur and mercury. It starts with the imbibition and with the marriage of heaven and earth, where we imbibe the highest heaven upon the lowest earth. And the same rules apply to homeopathy, the same rules apply to practical lab alchemy, the same rules apply to internal alchemy, the same rules apply to uh, hallucinogenic uh, initiations. You just imbibe a higher hallucination upon your lower one. Let's take your uh, ayahuasca experience that you described in the in part one. You came to the location where the initiation were, was to take place and you came uh, all immersed in your present hallucination, which you call your life, right? Yeah. How would you describe your life hallucination before you arrived uh, at the at the site of the initiation, as uh, lower than now. <laughs> lower than now. Yeah. So you came with a hallucination that was not very high. No. So your I, dream world, your virtual reality, was not very satisfying. I thought it was high, but I didn't realize how little I knew until after I was initiated. So, uh, if we're taking the concept of imbibing the higher upon the lower, then I would say that you came with a pretty low level hallucination, i.e. your normal life, and you sought to imbibe it with a higher consciousness, basically. Yeah. Which took some degree of surrender and some degree of opening up and just receiving. Yes. What many religions actually call the Holy Spirit and the alchemists call it the astral spirit or the universal spirit, but it's still the same concept. You are the philosophical earth, the central salt, and you have been imbibed with the Holy Spirit or anointed with the universal spirit, but the concept is still the same. And if we look at it closely, 
uh, we find, I know I'm repeating myself, but I'm doing it on purpose, we find the exact exact same concept in, in uh, hallucinogenic initiations, in homeopathy, in practical alchemy, in laboratory alchemy, inner alchemy, uh, Taoist alchemy, tantric alchemy. There is always an imbibition of the higher hallucination upon the lower one. Yes. So after you received in your uh, hallucinogenic initiation, you received this imbibition, you, you were willing to surrender and open up to receive the higher mind or the higher spirit. Uh, what happened as a result of imbibing this higher hallucination upon your previous lower one? Well, the lower one became higher than it was before. So uh, my hallucination now is higher than it used to be. And you would call this a sort of evolution, basically? Yeah. yeah. A sort yeah. of spiritual evolution? Yeah. And do you feel that it has accelerated your, your evolution? Yeah, it's uh, saved a lot of time. <laughs> yes, and we all know that alchemists are uh, are uh, not the kind that like to wait. No. They want to make uh, things happen Things happen faster. Uh, I'm sorry, do you want to say something? Yeah, they, some say that uh, one ayahuasca initiation can be like 10 years of psychotherapy. So it, it, it's a shortcut in a way. Also a good return on investment because yeah. the universe also operates like a business. Yeah. It wants good return on investment. Yeah, it's way cheaper than 10 years of psychotherapy. <laughs> yes, and the universe doesn't like to waste. No. But uh, um, one, just to... Uh, uh, because we both agree on all this, but if somebody who has not taken psychedelics might say, oh, well, you're just two druggies. But I think it's worth pointing out that you yourself uh, don't do psychedelics, but you still, you st you've still still seen this truth that it's about the higher and the lower. Because uh, my answer is very simple. There are many paths, but the principles are the same. And once we realize that no matter what path we choose or more precise what path chooses us, the same rules apply. If we use psychedelics, if we use internal alchemy, if we have shamanic revelations from a young age and this is what happened to me and I was scared shitless and went to psychiatrist, I was sure that I was going crazy and uh, maybe I went crazy but the best kind of crazy I could ho possibly hope for, uh, it was a major healing in my life. I, I could not see my life now without those scary experiences, even though no psychedelics was, were involved. But the point is that no matter what path chooses you or what path you take, the same rules apply. You can be a lab alchemist with flask and retorts and alembics. You still have to imbibe the, the, the astral spirit upon the philosophical earth. Whether you go to the shamans in, in, in Peru and take uh, partake in ayahuasca ritual initiation, then you still have to imbibe the higher hallucination upon the lower one with which you came. Whether you are a uh, treated by homeopathy, uh, your own sickness or disease or lower disease hallucination needs to be imbibed with the higher version of the very same disease from which you suffer. So you see, no matter what path you choose, the same rules apply. And the same rules apply in sports, in business, in religion, in spirituality, in healing. And once you understand that the same mechanics apply to every aspect of this virtual creation, of this hallucination that we call reality, 
then you develop a thing that's called uh, hermetic vision. You can see the whole picture, you can understand the mechanics, the paradox starts to actually make sense to you. And you no longer are conflicted between the two extremes of relative and absolute. You realize that you both exist and do not exist. You realize that you yourself are a hallucination and then simultaneously you are very, very real because you are self-aware and can perceive yourself to be real. And your need to evolve is built in uh, because it is part of the basic design of this mental creation slash virtual reality slash universal hallucination. And uh, the need to evolve is actually affected by this sacred imbibition by a higher frequency or by a higher hallucination than your own. And once you realize that the same rules apply, there is no longer a contradiction, there is no longer a need to fight over what's alchemy and what's not. Once we can agree that alchemy is actually accelerated evolution, which can mean accelerated intelligence, accelerated uh, mind power, accelerated healing, accelerated anything. Just raise your vibration, raise your frequency, go higher, higher, higher. Uh, you probably remember the Doors quote, Jim Morrison. Yeah, not exactly, but I know which one you mean. Uh, Maybe we can get much higher yeah, yeah, or something yeah, like that. Yeah. And uh, uh, break on through to the other side. Yes, break on through <laughs> to the other side. Uh, there is no other side, actually. Everything right. is the same side. It just evolves to a higher and higher level. But if people listening uh, and some people out there, I'm sure, have had this realization that everything is an illusion and everything we've been talking about. But um, there's one little problem. If you speak like this in normal society or with your at work or with your f friends that might not be as into it or as initiated uh, you can sound like somebody who is insane and lost touch with reality and uh, I've noticed this myself and um, the more sane I feel I become the more insane I appear to others do you have any solutions for this because I'm sure some people have had this problem where there are very uh, clear solutions to this, uh, which I discovered along my way. When I was getting started on my alchemical journey, I was uh, very uh, liberal in my opinions about uh, secrecy. I believe that should be no secrecy. I believe that it should be openly talked about and shared and uh, wisdom should be free for everyone and if someone makes a discovery they should share it with everyone else but now i understand much better that the tradition of secrecy in alchemy because uh, those who are into it know the phrase that the secret keeps itself which means that no matter how explicit you can be about the most deep and and revealing secrets of alchemy you can still feel like talking to a wall with someone, uh, if you speak to someone who is not ready to listen. And I, I'm quoting for a book uh, that says that the, the, the lips of wisdom are sealed except to the ears of understanding. So no matter how much I talk about it, no matter how much secrets I share in public, it could be in front of two people or 2,000 people or two million people for that matter, maybe one or two will understand. So uh, this is where the concept of find your philosophical company comes in. Find the others, find your own like-minded, find the ones that 
you can really talk with and to find the ones who, with whom you can collaborate and, uh, and be ethical and keep the secret and be silent about it. And I've met quite a few alchemists of different paths and, uh, and they all work in relative secrecy and they also know who to open up with and who to trust. And uh, gradually we learn to recognize each other. Uh, it's something in the eye, something in the vibration, something in the way you answer questions and you resonate that uh, we come to meet each other and then we can be much more open. But in public, uh, we need to wear a mask. It's not nice, it's not pleasant, but it's part of the game and uh, the alchemical tradition proves exactly the same. There is an element of secrecy which cannot be denied and I used to despise this phrase, uh, throwing, uh, throwing purse before swine. I used to despise it. I mean, uh, only f this is information is only for the worthy and uh, you're not worthy and you're a swine and I shouldn't throw purse at you. But in time, despite the slightly vulgar language, I've come to understand this phrase much better. I mean, if you would just go and talk to your uh, normal people in your life about your higher experiences, you would be in fact throwing purse before swine, allegorically speaking. It yeah. doesn't make them swine. It doesn't. It's not meant to insult anyone because we're all at different levels. And if some great master adept initiate would talk to me and I wouldn't understand the, a word of what he's talking, then I would be the swine and I would have no problem with that because I'm not ready. Mm. So uh, there is a tradition of evolution and of associating with the like-minded mm. or at least those who are equal or greater than yourself. And uh, for those who have not reached your level, you just share enough until they reach their point of resistance and then you just smoothly and diplomatically change the topic, just as if nothing happened. <laughs> and uh, as the years go by, you start to develop those skills and it's almost seamless transition between hardcore topics and the weather. Mm. No, it, it can be difficult because when I came back to reality or this society after my first initiation in ayahuasca, I felt like calling the CNN or the news and, you know, I wanted the whole world to know about this amazing experience. But I realized that it was much better to calm down <laughs> because I couldn't, sh you know, you can't give somebody else your own direct experience. Yeah, you just can't. And this is why alchemic alchemy is, uh, is basically a, a path of initiation, of personal initiation. You cannot share a personal initiation. No matter how many books you write, no matter how many speeches you give, no matter how many presentations uh, you have or, or, or lectures, you cannot convey what you have experienced. You cannot convey your own initiation because it's, it becomes part of who you are. It becomes engraved within you. And it's almost if not completely impossible to, to pass on and communicate. You can give someone pointers, you can give someone directions, you can give someone uh, clues or share a bit of a, about your experience, but you cannot transfer what you've earned to someone who has not earned it by themselves. First of all, because it's virtually impossible. And second of all, why should I be so cruel 
and viciously cruel to, to deny someone the amazing experience of being initiated on their own. Why should I be so, so, so mean and so cruel? Why should I give someone a recipe that they haven't earned and deny them the, the amazing quest of discovery? I consider this to be cruelty. I consider that to reveal a method or a recipe or a, a so-called great secret uh, to someone who hasn't earned it is not only unethical, but it's also cruel to the person who receives it. Because I would be denying them the quest and the amazing ecstasy of discovery. Yeah. Can you relate to what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm very happy I discovered it on my own. Well, so am I. <laughs> and, and, uh, but the path still continues. Uh, obviously, there's still so much we don't know. Of course, not completely on my own. I, uh, you know, I had pointers here and there, but nobody told me, go down and do it. You know? um, what do you see? Because alchemy has been practiced for, well, we don't know for how long, but uh, if we have this definition... Uh, that we've talked about now, it's in my opinion, it's been practiced since the dawn of time, um, because human beings have always been interested in their own evolution. Uh, but most people, when they think about alchemists, is this guy hermit in the lab, and uh, you have all these famous alchemists from three, four hundred years ago. Uh, but do you have a vision of the modern alchemist? Well, this is, again, my subjective opinion, and uh, it's kind of useless repeating it because my opinions cannot be anything else but subjective because we are living in a subjective universe, and using absolute terms in a relative universe is, to me, complete insanity. But uh, nevertheless, I say it, my subjective opinion is... What were we talking about? <laughs> no, if you have a... Uh, your vision oh the of, modern alchemist yeah, yeah I remember uh, I think that as uh, times are changing there is a new generation of alchemists with a much wider and uh, improved or upgraded hermetic vision much less bound to the fixed traditions of uh, the middle ages and which with a much more wide view of uh, what alchemy and personal evolution actually means. And uh, we've had the great uh, fortune and pleasure to meet with some of our colleagues uh, last week in Amsterdam and to discover this new generation of alchemists with a much more open view about evolution and what alchemy really means to them. And uh, I also know the uh, traditional alchemists still stick to their uh, material flasks and retorts and alembics and I do not want to invalidate any path but I do want to uh, to speak against uh, over dogma in alchemy alchemy is not just about the transmutation of metals alchemy is not just about uh, someone working in a laboratory using flasks alembics and transmuting matter like I said in uh, part one, it's more, it's less about the transmutation of metals and more about the transmutation of mentals. Yeah. Uh, the words sound similar, but there is quite a difference. And uh, accelerated evolution means 
the same for every realm. I mean, if we transmute lead into gold, then we basically accelerate the evolution of lead. Lead wants to become gold just as man wants to become Superman. So again, the same rules apply. We are applying accelerated evolution. This time in the realm of metals, we are accelerating the evolution of lead into gold. We are accelerating the evolution of a plant into a, a higher uh, spirit, spiritual plant. We are accelerating the evolution of a diseased body into a much uh, healthier one. So uh, accelerated evolution can be applied to metals, uh, to, uh, to salts, to, to concepts, to minds, to... Uh, to philosophies, to societies, to communities, to economies, to basically everything, because once you realize the mechanics and the hermetic foundation of this virtual hallucination that we call reality, then everything starts to make perfect sense. Because no matter which area, the same rules apply. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Maybe we should do this more often. Yeah, we should. <laughs> okay. So, uh, we'll say goodbye for now. And uh, I'm sure there are many more interesting episodes to come. Thank you for listening. Thanks.